Welcome to Room for Growth, a Willow Tree podcast about growth marketing hosted by Billy Lowen and me, Billy Fisher. Whether you're an industry expert or just getting started, there's plenty of room to grow. Share this episode with your favorite coworker, follow us wherever you enjoy podcasts, and reach out if you'd like to join the show. You ready, Billy? I'm ready, Billy. Let's go. Let's f***ing grow. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Room for Growth. We have an incredible guest today. If you are not sitting down, sit down. Get your coffee. Get your tea. Don't multitask. Don't do two things at once right now. Samara Bay is here, and she is a sought-after speech coach. She works with Hollywood celebrities, as well as political leaders, all sorts of C-suite executives, people who have to, on a regular basis, use their voice to communicate in a way that commands attention and credibility. And she is just here with hot take after hot take and tip after tip. It is all super practical knowledge. I was listening to the interview and basically everything she said was like, oh my goodness, I'm going to write that down and hang it on my wall. So we are not going to preamble too hard today. We just want to spend as much time as possible listening to her wisdom because it is so good. So without further ado, Samara Bay. We are excited to jump into our interview portion of Room for Growth. Samara Bay is our guest. She is a sought-after speech coach, author, speaker, and thought leader whose coaching includes top actors in Hollywood, C-suite executives, and thought leaders, candidates for U.S. Congress, and celebrities presenting at award shows. Samara's debut book, Permission to Speak, is on pre-order right now with Penguin Random House. It is slated for early 2023, and her work on rethinking the sound of power has been featured in the New York Times Magazine, Forbes, CBS Sunday Morning, Slate, Create and Cultivate, and Jezebel. She lives in Los Angeles with her husband, her son, and her dog, Moxie. Hi, Samara. Welcome to the show. Why, thank you. Moxie's over here really pleased that she got a shout out. (laughs) Hey, Moxie. Hey, Moxie. (laughs) So, Samara, we're, as Billy mentioned, so excited to have you on the podcast and really excited to hear about your book and hear about your journey And I think our audience certainly is dealing with issues of uh, how to communicate better, how to write great content, how to show up for their teams. And so we're going to cover some of those topics. But as we get started, our last two guests on our podcast, we had two female powerhouse guests. We had the chief marketing officer, Lynn Blashford from White Castle. And then we had Ashley Ellaby, who's the global head of Lifecycle Music and Amazon And they talked a lot about their excitement and the shift in brands, breaking down beauty standards. Lynn talked about just Dove, who has created and started this from the beginning, and how these brands are really breaking down some of the standards in marketing when it comes to beauty and and those areas. Can you tell us about voice standards? And you're an expert in this. How are they similar to voice standards? And what are you seeing in this space? I love that question. I think from a marketing standpoint, voice standards, we should define what we mean here. I think it's actually really fascinating, though, to think about the voice of a brand, right? And I'll leave that to second because maybe that's a conversation that we can have. But what I'm interested in, my first way into talking about this is voice standards when it comes to how each of us actually shows up in the moments that matter, when we have to either present something 
perhaps close to our heart in a meeting, pitching an idea, even if it's seemingly low stakes, the idea of pitching an idea in front of other people, you know, get the heartbeat going, or really any way. I define public speaking quite broadly, right? It can be a single conversation with one other person if there is some sort of a power dynamic. I think. And (laughs) I'm interested in what those standards have been of what an authority figure, quote unquote, should sound like that we've all just breathed in for a hundred years, for perhaps 2000 years, if you want to go back to the Greeks. And as with beauty standards, we need to become a bit literate in them if we're going to notice what we're accidentally holding ourselves to that we don't even want to, that we're never going to match, that's never going to feel good. But beauty standards, this gets talked about a lot, right? The sort of literacy around beauty standards, we know, right? We fall for it still sometimes because, hi, we live in culture. But we know at least to not trust, you know, Photoshopped images. Voice standards is trickier because, first of all, they're invisible, right? It's just sounds. And second of all, there's not a lot of language to talk about this. We hear when somebody powerful and female runs for office that they're perhaps shrill. That word gets thrown around. And then maybe in our smaller moments when we're not running for national office, but we're just, you know, meeting with our mentor or our manager or our boss. And they say, we've gotten a bit of feedback that when you use the word like too much, it really undermines your credibility. And I'm curious about how those are two parts of the same conversation, which is, There are standards on what powerful people should sound like that, big surprise, sound like the most rich, white, powerful males who, you know, 100 years ago were literally who the public was allowed to be for, right? I mean, women weren't even allowed to step outside of their house in turn-of-the-century New York without a chaperone. And if you did, you were considered, quote-unquote, a public woman, which was their term for a prostitute. So I bring up this history to suggest that, yeah, when we're feeling discomfort, and this isn't just for women, of course, this is for anybody who's aware that their accent or their manner of speaking is, quote-unquote, non-standard, there's a long history of shame and stigma and confusion around how to stand your ground and take up the space you take up and say, this is what power sounds like now. Maybe not yesterday, maybe not 20 years ago, certainly not 100 years ago, but now. Super interesting. Do you have an example, I'm curious, of where we might see this in society in particular? And what is especially your advice to more marginalized populations? Is it lean into sort of what's expected of you? Or how do you find your voice in a way that can be authentic without having to adhere to these rigid standards, but still ultimately builds credibility? That's still important. Yes. Yes. I mean, these are the hot questions for sure. And the answer is really different for each individual and for each context. What I think is really interesting is that tension that you just suggested. So what I'm hearing in that question is, what do we do? What does society do to meet us where we are? A hundred percent. What do we need to do? What do they need to do? Yeah. Credibility is still important, especially for leaders or for anybody in public society. Of course. And part of what I'm interested in, quite honestly. So My book really is from both of those things, right? So part of it is, how does anybody who picks up this book or who, you know, interacts with these ideas, right? Who's listening right now? How do you think about what are the aspects of my identity? My, our identity comes out in our voice. It's where we've been. Mm -hmm. It's what our parents sounded like. It's where we grew up. These sort of literal aspects of our accent. But then it's also what, then what? Why did we leave? Where did we go? Who did we date? What rooms of power did we get buy-in? What habits did we pick up to get taken seriously in those rooms or to seem unintimidating in those rooms? And what of those those habits do we like? 
and which ones actually we feel like are holding us back or keeping us small, right? So we're in that juicy spot where we can think about all the ways that we show up and think, well, here's something I love from linguistics. And I think this is actually really important because there can be some kind of embarrassment or shame around habits we've picked up. Mm-hmm. Linguists will say every single habit any of us has in how we speak, we picked up for a reason. So it worked in certain, those likes there's all kinds of functional benefits to those likes. Actually, if you want to Google how many likes there are in English, you'll see these amazing articles that pop up. There's six different likes. The word like is actually a homonym. And then there's linguistic, you know, delicious stories about each of them and why we overuse them or don't overuse them. So part of it is that we get to think for ourselves, how do I own the sounds that come out of my mouth? The ones I like, the ones I don't like. How do I trash the ones that I picked up for a bad reason that actually do not define me anymore? And what is the process of trashing, right? Because that's hard. So part of it is that. And then the other part is calling out voice biases. And this is the other major part of my book, because for me, when we start thinking about voices, what we're actually talking about is social justice. What we're actually talking about is what people have historically sounded like who have been taken seriously and what kind of entrenched stories there are in that. Of course, it's going to be the oldest, whitest, richest man. Like, nothing against old, white, rich men. They're fine. It's not their fault. But for the rest of us now, we're like, oh, what did I accidentally breathe in and decide my voice needs to be lower if I'm going to get taken seriously? Maybe that's not true anymore. What are some examples of people whose voices are not sort of artificially lowered? thinking, we're all thinking Elizabeth Holmes here, right? Whose voice is not artificially lowered, and yet you take them seriously, and yet you right. respect them. Well, what are they teaching us about other standards or other, you know, whatever, busting of standards that nonetheless seem to be a voice that, of credibility? Some of it's that, and some of it is, I'm hoping that the book actually creates mm. conversations where we start to notice what our own voice standards, or, or sorry, our own voice biases are, and can call that out in others, right? So that if we get the note you need to stop smiling so much. It's making you lose credibility. We can say, actually, I'm curious about a new, uh, modeling a new kind of leadership. And that might actually just be a a bias, (laughs) right? It's a thought and it's a, mm, a tool of change to be able to call out, oh, well, you know how there's a bunch of biases. There's also voice bias. It's one that people don't talk about. Linguists talk about it. But here we are in the mainstream saying, oh, wait, let's check those biases too. One of the things that I love so much, especially working in a technology field, is that language is really complicated. There's a reason why today we have not figured out a single piece of technology that's very good at doing things like translating English to Portuguese in a way Mm. that can be used sort of conversationally, because language is one of the truest forms of democracy out there. You can have a kid in Brooklyn who starts saying some like one-off statement and then his friends pick it up and the neighborhood picks it up and it becomes mainstream and language is sort of like always evolving. In some ways that's brilliant. It's beautiful. It's hyper real. And in other ways that can make it really challenging, especially as marketers to figure out how to have an authentic voice in what you are sending to consumers. But we know that's so important. We talk about it in personalization frequently. If you can talk to people in the right language, in the right dialect, in the right way that they want to be spoken to, it's not just about time or place. It really is. How do you get voice right in a way that makes people comfortable and makes them feel like they're understood? Because frankly, it drives conversion in marketing. This is just something that we talk about regularly. I'm curious how you take this 
topic of personalization to heart? Like, why is it so important to talk to people in a dialect, in a language that's most comfortable for them? I think, I mean, human brains have this amazing ability, amazing and deeply problematic ability to us versus themify anyone, everything. Linguists will say that's why dialects exist. Mm. I read this amazing piece where a woman said that if you separate a common group by a mountaintop, they will start having different accents and then they'll hear each other and go, oh, (laughs) you're from the other side of the mountain. That happens, you know, inside of a single generation, as you suggest with this Brooklyn example, right? That happens inside of a single week, sometimes in friend groups, right? People pick up a phrase, it starts to move. So you're right. I mean, language on the move is incredible and powerful and hard to contain. The real question, I think, is if you want to speak to somebody like you're an us and not a them, what is that process and how do you do it in a way that doesn't feel manipulative? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that is actually having diverse people around you, right? A diversity of voices. If you know that your target audience is from a certain age group demographic, psychographic, and you are very much not, and your brand is filled with people who are not, you get to make a choice, right? If I want to sound like them, I better be sure. I better, you know, my market research is not just what do they need, but who is somebody that I can consult with to make sure that I'm talking to my people like I actually want to help and not just exploit. And then the other question, of course, is if you don't, you know, there's obviously people are used to hearing people who don't sound like them too. So if the brand doesn't actually match, but wants to speak to that group, then there is an interesting conversation in saying, I'm not you, but I'm here to help you. But then there's an authenticity in that, an authenticity instead of like a wiggly, which one am I trying to be? We have jumped like right into the pool of language details. And I realize I'm wondering, how did you get here to where you're, uh, you know, writing a book, permission to speak and coaching? Can you tell us a little bit about your journey and like, let's like back up a little bit. How did you develop (laughs) this expertise? You know, I'm going to like go back to when I was seven. No, I'm not going to tell you the story, but I will say that when I was seven and maybe other people had some kind of an experience like this, one of the first movies that I remember very clearly watching was My Fair Lady. So old timey musical, but it's at its heart about a woman with an accent that is coded for lower class, clearly not the language I was using when I was seven, but you know, she has a Cockney accent. She's a flower girl. She has no upward mobility because of how she sounds. And then this dude, who's basically a dialect coach, takes it upon himself to do a social experiment. And he puts a fancy accent into her mouth over many months of boot camp. And now she's a fancy lady and her world is open up to her. So I saw this sort of rags to riches story and who knows what seven-year-old me really thought, but I think the seed was planted even then that it seems, you know, I think seven-year-olds are pretty clever and they are trying to figure out how the world works. It seems that how we talk affects how we get treated. And then in my twenties, I was in an acting program, a graduate acting program and talking a lot as you might do and singing and all the things, all the performance things. And I lost my voice and it, was months and I was not sick. And I was so confused and felt so, I mean, you can imagine, you're, you've heard me. I'm a talker and here I was without my voice. And it was just an absolute, you know, shakeup of the ego. And I eventually got to an ear, nose and throat doctor and they stuck a scope, a little micro, you know, micro camera up my nose and down the back of my throat. I got an image of my vocal cords and there were little blisters on them. And this is a telltale sign of vocal nodules which in my case 
were these little blisters that formed because I had been speaking habitually, just a habit I'd picked up a teeny bit lower than my body's optimum pitch. <laughs> and we all have an optimum pitch. It doesn't mean we have to stay in one, you know, one note, but that is sort of our, our average. And I had been speaking a little lower. When did I pick it up? Probably high school. Who knows? It didn't affect me until it did. And I got back to class. I'd missed the morning session and the teacher stopped the class. I was in front of all of my graduate classmates. And he said, so what's the diagnosis? And I said with this, you know, extremely painful, barely audible voice, um, vocal nodules, I, I think I have to go on vocal rest. And he said, ha, just as I thought, bad usage. Right? It's such a weird phrase. It doesn't have any like cultural significance, right? But I knew emotionally in that moment, what he was saying was, yeah, you're injured, but you did it to yourself. And that was the next step, I think, in my, you know, seven-year-old self trying to figure out, okay, so we pick up how to talk and then it affects how we get treated. And now I seem to have picked something up that made me lose my voice and I did it to myself. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. I don't know why. I don't know how. I don't know what to do next. All I know is I did this to myself. I fucked up. And in a way, my book is for 24-year-old me who just was like, you know, huddled with a cup of tea late at night for months in the dead of winter in Providence, Rhode Island, being like, what am I? Why? What is my voice trying to tell me? And the answer, you know, just to spoiler alert it, is I lowered my voice a tiny bit in high school because... I knew I came across as really warm and smiley and, you know, perhaps girly. And I had clearly subliminally, this was not a conscious decision, figured out a way to come across as a little bit more powerful, a little more, yeah, I know I'm all warm and, you know, friendly, but take me seriously. And it worked until it didn't. Wow. And so then I, you know, I was an actor. I was a dialect coach. I coached a lot of movie stars. And I would have these sessions where we were literally sitting at on set in their trailers, at their dining room tables when we were preparing, you know, their accent. And this sort of conversation, this vulnerability around other aspects of vocal showing up would inevitably come up. This idea of the sounds coming out of our mouth affect how we get treated is just really deep. And most people don't have the space to talk it out, the language or the sense that they're in this together. That like huddled with a cup of tea metaphor is how most people feel when they have been given any feedback about their voice. Why can't I hack it? So eventually I started coaching non-actors as well, women who are running for office for the 2018 midterms and my friends who are entrepreneurs. And then I got more and more involved with helping corporate types. And, you know, there's all kinds of things we can talk about, but at the heart of it is this question of what is it to vocally show up versus to vocally hide? What habits have we picked up that help us hide in a context that doesn't feel safe? And so all your questions about, you know, okay, so when and how do we show up? Right, right. You know, I have a billion answers, but also I meet people where they are because obviously what rooms feel safe is a really personal question. Wow. Before we transition to talking about like a little bit of advice, given your expertise, I have a couple, like just another background question based on that, which is, well, I guess two of them. First of all, <laughs> how did you create the network that you did? I'm really curious how you went from this jump of like, I was in college and I was acting and then suddenly I was coaching and I was working with other actors, actresses, and then leaders of our government, et cetera, to get to where you are today. So what did you do about networking? And well, the dialect coaching side, I love, I mean, thank you. How sweet of you to ask because, you know. My story is wiggly and windy and isn't it nice when we get to just take a moment and go, everybody's stories are wiggly and windy right. and eventually make sense. 
hopefully in some moment. And then we say, oh, it was all, it all, it's like I had a plan all along. Basically, the dialect stuff came directly out of the acting. And that was a, a real building of my career over a 10, 15 year period, both in New York and then in LA. And there's a, one woman who represents all of the dialect coaches. There's not that many of us, like 20 total in the entire country. So a lot of work started to come from that and from word of mouth. But the real moment of pivot, I did not know at the moment was a pivot, right? Was in the summer of 2018 when this wild confluence of things happened. First of all, it was a wild moment in our country's history. But I was working in Washington, D.C. for a month on Wonder Woman 2, coaching Gal herself. And on a day off, I took a wander. I was wandering in the city, having one of those, you know, summer in Washington, D.C. moments. And I got a call that moveon.org had been given the tip off that I might be somebody from a friend, literally it was a friend who suggested me for as somebody who might be able to totally pro bono help a bunch of first time female candidates for office who were fantastic at the policies and fantastic at their why, but not necessarily showing up at the microphone, scaling themselves up in a way that was going to get trust from their potential constituents. And I was so curious about that and already thinking so much about the intersection of performance and politics, quite honestly, that summer of 2018, that I jumped at it. And then another thing happened that same summer. I went to Princeton undergrad and I was extremely honored when I got a call that they wanted me to speak at their women's conference that fall. And it was literally Justice Kagan and Justice Sotomayor, who are both alums and, you know, a bunch of other people. And then would I do a breakout workshop for, let's say they said 50 people, it would be women only, and it would be non-performers, obviously. And I was like, well, I have literally never done that, but of course. And then right before I flew out to do it, I got an automated email that went out to all of the speakers that said how many people had signed up for my course, my, my little workshop. And the answer was 465. <laughs> and they had to move into the biggest auditorium on campus where I had like seen, you know, Willie Nelson in concert when I was an undergrad. And I was like, oh, okay. So I had titled this workshop, this first attempt at a workshop. Literally, I called it how to use your voice to get what you want. And here was market research I did not know I was doing, right? But a lot of people want to know the answer to that question. Mm -hmm. And that was an hour 15 that totally changed my life. I mean, the, the feedback, but also the actual experience of being up there. I tried to still make it a workshop. It was super interactive. And the, you know, I heard in that safe-ish space that we created together, a 22-year-old who had just graduated, who was doing a podcast and getting huge shock, trolled about her voice. I heard from a middle-aged woman who had a teenage daughter who was obsessed that her daughter was picking up these terrible habits and undermining herself. And then we all heard as this woman stood up in the back of the room who was literally the oldest you can be and have gone to Princeton because they didn't let in women until the 70s. And she stood up and said, I am the only female board member of fill in the blank major bank. And I can't get a word in edgewise at meetings. And all of us, you know, breathed that in. And we were like, aha. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So anytime you're sitting alone with your cup of tea, <laughs> this is an all of us issue. And of course, the more you know work I've done with this and the more I've coached people, I want to make it very clear this is really not just women. It's really anybody who either because of their accent or style of speech or because of their own interest in how they show up are sort of accidentally balking against old trends. I have so many questions and Same. most of them are selfish in nature. Oh, I um, love that. <laughs> so uh, I'm like, okay. So 
I want to pivot back to your book and the work that you do. And I know you mentioned it's on pre-order. So I have obviously, of course, have not had the chance to read it. Who is your book for? Is it for um, the group that you're describing? Tell us a little bit more about that. And then I have some questions to kind of jump off, off that bit of information. Yeah, it actually makes me feel like I want to read this little tiny, tiny bit from my intro about who my book is for, which I have not done on a single podcast. Ooh, do it. <laughs> do you want me? Okay, I, I just need like six seconds to find it. I actually have the document open. Yeah, okay. Well, so I'm actually going to give you a tiny little sneak peek of um, my book introduction in answer to your question, because what yeah. a tee up that was. So, you know, I say in the book, so now I coach everyone who needs help uncovering a voice they might eventually call their own, independent of those ill-fitting old-fashioned standards. Entrepreneurs and CEOs and new political candidates and creative types and moms going back to work and celebrities too. I coach women on a mission and not just women, immigrants, people of color, queer folks, and those who reject binary labels. Those of you who worry you're too big or too small those who are in toxic masculinity recovery, those who want to fit in and those who want to stand out. That's awesome. So some of the who's it for that you mentioned there is kind of where I wanted to go. I have been in a scenario multiple times and I would just love to get your thoughts. This is like where I said, this is very selfish, but I think I would guess everybody listening can relate to some. That's what's like so unique. We've all been in some sort of scenario where I grew up in a house where my mom said Warsh and Tullet and Library and I have been on a mission to make sure that I don't let my Kentucky accent come out. In, uh, <laughs> and so everybody has their version of that story, I yeah. would guess, some to more extremes. But I have been in a scenario with folks that multiple times, and even recently, that English is their second language. And they come to me and say, can you help me? I want to present better. I want to do storytelling better. And they reference some of kind of the language and their accent as a barrier to that. And I always feel extremely unequipped on how to help them with that challenge. And as an expert, I'd be curious, how do you coach somebody that is English as a second language and they're presenting to clients, to their boss? Where do you start? Okay. So I have two answers. First, just to honor the story that you very graciously told us about your Kentucky upbringing. I have termed this our voice story. We all have a voice story. Right. And it's not like a beginning, middle, and end type of story, although there is some chronology involved. But it's what our own relationship to our voice has been our whole life. So it is some of that stuff. But it's also sometimes for us, it's birth order. What role did we feel like we had to play at home? But then maybe at school, it was different. Or sort of archetypes did we feel obligated to perform for the people who loved us? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, these interesting questions of where we learned how to be nice or where we learned how to be funny or with whom did we learn, you know, how to land a, a joke or how to tell a story that really works. And for some of us, we, we might hear that and think, I never did, right? Which is also part of your voice story. So honoring that as soon as I start talking about a voice story, everyone's like, oh, I have one. So yes, correct, yes. right? And each of ours is different. And it's why literally every single one of us sounds different from everyone else on earth. So when we talk about brand voice, right, we also have to acknowledge that even inside of a us-ness, there's a billion different little us's. So that's part of it. The other part is the answer to your question. There's kind of two things going on with English as a second language people. Of course, there's a billion things, but in two major categories. One is what are the actual sounds that I could use some help with? So 
dialect work on the one hand is storytelling and all that. On the other hand, the practical side of it, vowels, consonants, things we don't think about since we were like in first grade learning how to read, right? Mm -hmm. Vowels and consonants, vowels, your mouth stays open. Ah, eh, e, sound keeps coming through. Consonants, something closes up, right? Fun. The thing is, in other languages, they don't have some of those. So the ones that they've never grew up saying, their mouth just can't make those muscles, you know, move that way easily. They have to practice, practice, practice. So some of it is that stuff, introducing a sound. Okay, so here's how to make the TH so that you don't hide sort of emotionally and physically every time you have to make a TH word because you know you're not doing it right. So sometimes that's what will unlock someone's confidence. But the other side of it is the confidence can be a standalone. It can have nothing to do with the sounds themselves. Mm -hmm. It can be about offering people, you know, in that moment that you described, Billy, it can be about saying to that English as a second language person, first of all, what feedback have you actually gotten? Because maybe you're more worried than you need to be about clarity. Second of all, what would it feel like to just decide you are how English sounds exactly where you are? You are it. You own it. English is yours. It is English as a second language people's language more than it's English as a first language people's language. (laughs) Everyone speaks English and, you know, 99% of us do it with an accent. And who does it without an accent? A made up accent called standard American that is a standard accent that most of us don't speak. Right. So we all speak with an accent, which is not to say that Accent bias doesn't exist. If people are feeling that they are being treated differently because of an accent, that's also sure. valid, right? But if we're talking about ownership at the microphone, that is about deciding I my the ways I sound are the ways I'm supposed to sound. Yep, thanks. Let's go the opposite direction though and give some advice to people who have a fear of public speaking. I think we all know that that's a major common fear. Or maybe they don't fear public speaking, but they just have to have a difficult conversation and they want to handle it well and make sure that they communicate well. What are some of your tips for preparation? So one's super short-term and one's a longer, bigger thought. The short-term one is in the moments before you're going to speak is when we tend to sort of worst-case scenarioify or we get this mistaken sense that the more I go over what I want to say, that's what I should be doing in my final moments, right? Go over my words, go over my words. Instead, I offer, and I actually have a free warm-up on my website if you want to go to smartbay.com slash goodies. It's like a six-minute warm-up to help you just, what would be the best thing to do for those few minutes before something high stakes, right? And the answer has much more to do with dance, joy, dance, by which I mean like literally turn on music and just be a little silly. And here's a really legit one from the world of social psychology. Bring to mind a memory of a moment when you were truly admired or people really got you. Bring that memory to mind and literally breathe it in. Like try to remember it in your body the way it felt. Because when we prime ourselves for power, we're much more likely to enter into a space feeling powerful. If we prime ourselves for the opposite, obviously that happens too. The other longer term kind of bigger thought I want to offer is, you may have heard, I feel like Harvard Business Review puts out an article every month about the strength warmth balance. So this is a bit clinical and feels like one of those leadership skills where you're like, okay, so there's a strength dial and there's a warmth dial and I have to dial. How do I dial? What is that? I'm a person. How do I dial? So I want to offer this because Strength and warmth is a really, really useful dance, these two different kind of energies, but they need to feel, I think, a little bit more human in order to access them. So strength, by that, I mean how we come across when we have something to say that perhaps we actually do know what we're talking about. So the question is, do we sound like we do or not? 
right? All kinds of hedges we've picked up. I mean, but I don't know. What do you think? That kind of energy, which we've picked up for a reason, right? Linguists will tell us. So I'm not here to shame that at all, but it's something to notice, right? So if the one on the dial, but I don't, I don't really know. Like, I don't know. What do you guys think? And the 10 is here's what we need to do. You might already be aware as you hear this of where you kind of maybe fall naturally on that. And then the warmth one, right, is from cold to warm. So the question is, what energy do you accidentally, without even trying to, come into a room with? Do you have kind of a closed off vibe or kind of an opened up vibe? And the goal is to match these two. They don't have to both be at 10. But there's all kinds of studies to suggest that when you're more you know, we can figure it out, right? When we're more on the strong side than the warm side is when we get called things like demanding, difficult, if you're a woman, the B word. And if you're so on the warm side, you've got so much warmth, but your strength isn't quite there. You get called things like adorable, so nice. You're, oh my God, you're so nice, right? Which is not great for leadership. Might get you some things, won't get you leadership. So what exists inside of you to up those the one that maybe feels a little lopsided. That's what I'm interested in. Not smile more, not some outside pretending to be someone else, but what version of you, here's my real offer, what version of you shows up when a child or a loved one, a dear friend needs your help and you can show up with the strength of, I've got this, I'm exactly who you should come to and the warmth of, and I've got you, I'm taking care of Mm. you. I've got this, I've got you. Strength, warmth. And I offer that because it's human, right? We actually know how to balance these when we are not thinking about ourselves at all, but we are taking care of the other person. So the question is, how do we bring that into a difficult conversation, especially with somebody who doesn't necessarily, quote unquote, deserve us to take care of them, right? The resentment can be there and we can say, no, 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 this is strategy. I'm doing this for me. It doesn't hurt that I'm also taking care of other people. And like, this is the kind of leadership I would like to see more of in the world. but it's strategy. I want to ask at least one more kind of depth question and then we can move to some of our like shorter pithier kind of closers here. But I'm really curious based on what you just talked about strength versus warmth. And there's this notion of who are you at your core? What's your authentic self and your authentic self in different situations versus how you're perceived. So on one hand, I'm really curious how people can become more aware of how they're being perceived. But then also, how will they know when they're speaking in their most authentic voice and how can they aim north towards that authenticity? I have some answers here. I'll say this. I think the greatest way to know if you're speaking authentically or not is if there's some element of joy or mischief or pleasure. When there's none, you're usually so far out of alignment. You may very well be doing it for a good reason, right? The room isn't safe, blah, blah, blah. But you've perhaps negotiated away more of yourself than you want to. And it's a learning experience. Okay, well, how would I do less of that next time? So look, not every room, not every moment, and certainly not in 2022 America, can we bring joy into every, you know, experience. But I like to offer that because the mischievous aspect of it, the little inner squirrely, that little sense of like my twinkle matters is a great sign of if we're in alignment with our values, with our speech you know, with our sense of integrity on some level. I'll say this too, because the word authenticity, you know, it's so wily. It's one of those things that we're like, great, thanks for that meme, be authentic person. 
how, which version of me, what, right? I mean, authenticity is meant to capture a spirit of truth, right? We're, yay, truth, check, love that. How? And I'm a pragmatist, right? I'm a coach. So I'm all about like, if it doesn't work, it doesn't matter. So here's a working definition of authentic. Talking about what we care about, like we care about it. We have all learned over a lifetime of practice how to talk about what we care about, but under care, sound like we don't. So here's a big idea that I have, but I mean, I don't know, whatever. What do you guys think? Right? It's a great tool to seem disengaged, right? Which is safety, which is self-protection. But in those moments where we really are going to pitch something that matters to us, to say this matters to me and then also have all of the signs, all the visual cues and the voice going up and down range rather than monotone stuck in our throat, hiding version of ourselves. These are ways that we can say, I am being vulnerable on purpose and showing you what matters to me. And vulnerability in this way, where we're really, you know, using it for our cause, that's the only way we make an impact. I was actually going to ask a question about your coaching and that Billy was just kind of talking about the team. When you're coaching, you talked a couple, a little bit about, you know, you've got a book coming out. You talked about seminars. Do you coach teams? Because I feel like, <laughs> like can we hire you? <laughs> in my career, I have been a part of many teams. I've heard from many teams that, you know, how they communicate, how they show up. We do so many trainings, but very rarely are we like zoomed in on voice. And yeah. Well, and you know, also just to call it out, we haven't quite said this out loud, but obviously by voice, we're not just talking about sound waves, right? right. We're talking about all the ways that we show up vocally right. or hide words, that have to yeah. do with our identity, right? It's right. like huge questions of, our relationship to power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Look, yes is the answer. And more and more, because obviously the more I talk about this, the more people are like, oh, this isn't an individual thing. This is a group thing. Right. right. So yeah, I've been getting a lot more involved in B2B work and doing workshops and, you know, ongoing consultancy and stuff. It's yeah, really it's cool. Awesome. Cause this is, of course, this is the goal, right? We don't want it to feel like everybody who, you know, due to their identity or how they show up has an additional burden of how to sound quote unquote professional. Yeah, yeah. We don't want huh. that burden to be exclusively on, you know, people who already are feeling burdened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love that your advice is so practical too. It's meeting people exactly where they are as who they are, where they come from, what their story is, what's unique about them, but saying, Hey, here's some tools that you can have to become more self-aware and to really think about what you are trying to communicate and how. And that's great. Like these practical ways of just being more present in the moment about how you're communicating. I think are super helpful. Thank you. I also really feel like, you know, that reminds me underneath a lot of this, if we're talking about public speaking, I think we should probably just call out that so many of the shoulds that we have rattling around inside of us come from, you know, accumulated wisdom, more quotes, that leave us feeling fear, right? I mean, of course, this is the big joke is you'd rather be the dead person than the one giving the eulogy, right? So (laughs) fear around public speaking is another way of saying public speaking is taught and executive presence coaching is taught from a fear-based perspective. And what if we just say, wait a second, is there a way to teach public speaking from a love-based perspective? I'm not saying that I'm a Pollyanna and that the world is all perfect, but I am saying that if we can approach those moments that we have to speak from the point of view of, I'm going to talk about what matters to me, like it matters to me, I'm going to care out loud, and I'm going to trust that the other people in the space are going to feel that care. It's going to be contagious and care is going to spread. Like that's what a more pleasant 
Yeah. Yeah. Whole ecosystem. Then like, I hope they don't laugh at me. Yeah. hundred percent. As you're talking, I'm, we've really, it's impossible not to think about yourself and people you've coached, but a lot of our listeners are in marketing and work for brands. And so we touched on brand voice for a little bit. I'm curious, are there voices uh, like personalities or so people or brands in the market that you're obsessed with right now that you would describe as kind of that you admire from a voice standpoint? You know, I'm actually going to semi not answer your question and instead cool. point everybody <laughs> to uh, a woman who I know named Natalia Sanyal. I'll give you her the spelling, but she helps brands with branding language with voice mm-hmm. as well as language and following her on LinkedIn is an education. Right. So a lot of the ones that she highlights are ones she's either worked with or not worked with, but what it is to kind of get honest about, first of all, ways that we can use marketing language to make sure that we're actually creating a better world, right? We are, as she's saying, as she puts it, harmless, mm-hmm. harmless. But second of all, how we just can pull out jargon and assumptions and start to get language that both works and also is, well, I should say that works because it's both clear and clever, but yeah. not one or the other. Awesome. Yeah. Say that name one more time. Natalia Sanyal. All right. Awesome. Billy, you want to ask your favorite question to close us out? Yeah. So my favorite question is we are really focused on how do we get people more obsessed and engaged with brands in particular. And I'm always curious what drives true loyalty to a brand for people. So Samara, what brands are you actually loyal to and why do you love the experience that you have with them? Okay. So the first one that comes to mind is Rent the Runway, which I'm a relatively new customer of, but I've now tried both their monthly model and their one-off model. Look, the ways they interact with me feel very human. When I had a question about whether something was eligible or not, the person wrote back in the, you know, whatever customer chat thing and said it was not eligible and yet did not make me feel bad. (laughs) Like some style of interaction made me feel taken care of. The warm side was there as well as the strong, right? And finally, they deliver their products sooner than expected every time. So I think honestly, now that I'm talking about this, the strength, warmth, balance in how you feel as a customer, right? They've right. got this, they've got me. That's pretty powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Not to mention rent the runway is just so easy. Why would I buy a holiday dress when I could rent a holiday dress that I well, could never and buy? Especially now that I feel like I'm doing more public facing things. If I've worn an outfit for some big thing, I'm probably not going to wear it again. Totally. So perfect. I've got eight <laughs> the only, Instagram The only pictures. thing that's given me pause. Exactly, exactly. That I don't want nine. I can't, that's the cutoff. Totally. The only thing that gives me pause is I have read a little bit of the fine print of people who say that that kind of, you know, recycling or upcycling doesn't actually do much for the planet. So I have to slow down on feeling like I'm also being a good citizen, but it is better than, you know, obviously just fast fashioning. Yeah. And it's holiday party season. So I feel like this is like a perfect plug for Rent the Runway as people are like, what the heck am I, what are we going to wear to this? I am uh, now expecting a Rent the Runway sponsorship. And if it doesn't come through, all of this I'm taking back. Yeah, we're open to sponsorships. Uh, So uh, yeah, Yeah, so awesome. Well, so where can people find you uh, online? Remind us again when your, uh, your book is coming out, how they can learn more about your book as we exit, we've enjoyed the conversation so much, but yeah, tell us more where people can find you. 
Of course. So the book is out in February. If you want to pre-order it, then you will forget that you ordered it and it'll just arrive on February 7th, <laughs> like, a, like a gift from the gods. Uh, you can pre-order it. Just go to samarbay.com. There's a bunch of different places there if you want to get it from an indie outlet. Separately, if you're at samarbay.com, put in a slash goodies and pick up my free warm-up that I mentioned earlier. And if you want to follow me on Instagram, I post a weekly tip every Tuesday morning. I joke that it's like my own little one-minute TV show. <laughs> and I have a, a year's worth accumulated now. So. Awesome. And also, that's a great spot to DM me if, if any of this you want to talk about further. We do. Samara, this has been a joy. We're definitely ordering the book and we'll be in touch because we'd love to just get more of your energy into Willow Tree, think about how we could bring you into the fold and talk about how we can all get better using our voices. Dreamy, dreamy. I love that. All right. So to our listeners, thank you for joining us today. Samara, thank you for joining as well. And we will see you next week on Room for Growth. 